Yeah, on. And an album. Doramorigato, Mr. Ravato. Doramorigato, Mr. I said thank you very much. What I mean to thank you. I like your remix there. That was that was tasty. It was called a mashup. Is that what the kids call it? Mm. See, I was just kind of looking at both of our. Uh, I don't know appearances right now, and we look awful. <laughs> we look like we look like two guys that are in month ten of a uh, pandemic or something. <laughs> are we? Are we kind of glad this is audio only, or we're both looking a little uh, gamey? <laughs> I think we just look um, like the couple of crafty old veterans that we are. You know, well, old is right for sure. Well, welcome to this week's edition. Of the podcast. Tia, is there such a thing as guilty pleasures in music? You know, people say this all the time. It's like, oh, my guilty pleasure is blah, blah, blah. And then I'm, I'm always thinking like, what's guilty about that? You know, is it, is it, is it like such a thing? Or why do, people, why do people feel guilt over enjoying certain artists? I don't get it. Oh, God, yes. There's, there's definitely such a thing. I was actually just uh, listening to a Celine Dion track earlier this morning. So... You know, got that going for me. Um, Where's the guilt in that? Is it because Celine Dion is is not talented, or because she's not cool, or I mean, like French? The, yeah, because she's, she's French. Like where French Canadian? I guess I really yeah, French that's Canadian. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I think that it's more of a thing where you know it's kind of like the uh, the moped. They're fun, but you don't want your friends to see on one. You know, um, it's similar where you just have some tunes where they're great and you should enjoy them and certainly have the liberty in this free country of ours to enjoy them but you don't always necessarily want people to know um and i think that we all have that to an extent but it's kind of part of the fun of music and and also part of the fun on you know our i think our lack of elitism here on the old podcast here right i mean in episode zero we made clear very early as we were kind of explaining why we wanted to do this, that we weren't going to take the approach that we were too cool for anything. So, so, you know, I think we all have our musical guilty pleasures, but it's important to never be too good or too cool or too elitist for anything musically. Thank you very much. It's very well said. I feel like we should play the, um, like the Americana music in the background, you know? Yeah, like the he's a jolly good fellow or something. Yeah, and I'm not going to sit here and let you insult the United States of America, <laughs> gentlemen. <laughs> gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I don't think I've ever felt guilty about listening to anything. I mean, I, I don't, you know, there's, there's some humor, I think, to certain selections, but I don't, I don't know about true guilt. But, you know, t- tonight's band is one that I've heard cited previously as a guilty pleasure, and I, hmm. I cannot understand that. I don't see the guilt in that particular one. A pleasure I get, but I don't see any guilt on that one. You know, it's a band. I mean, it's a great pick. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this one. It's a band that has always had a hard time being taken seriously. And some of that is brought on to themselves, right? I mean, we've, you know, they're the theatricalness and the indulgence and some of those things and, and some of the um, just sort of intra-clashing not necessarily of personalities, but just of styles and of, I think, intentions behind what this band was always trying to go for. I think there were a lot of ideas and concepts being pulled in different directions, you know? So I think there was a combination of a lot of internal strife, which was never terribly serious. It it seemed more creative in nature, which probably led to a little bit of music fans kind of always having a little bit of an eye roll when it comes to sticks, but that's part of what's great about diving into what we're going to dive into today is it's really at the height of their creativity. And I think taking the good parts of all the band's different personality elements and sort of rolling them up into one positive collection, whereas it could be argued that in 
other works from these guys that, you know, things probably tipped too far in one direction or another. But I guess that's what we'll talk through today, eh? We certainly will. And and I'll just tell you, this is a guilt-free zone, all right? So everybody welcome in tonight and settle in for a conversation about sticks and and, and no guilt tonight. So no regrets, everybody. No regrets. There's no regrets on tonight's edition. And there will certainly be no regrets as we take episode 22 round and round. Let's do it. See, what is spinning around for you? There's a very, I think, rather influential band that I, as recently as like two days ago, <laughs> discovered a bit. Or I mean, I had heard of them, but I'm sort of diving into a little bit. And that's Killing Joke. And particularly their album Fire Dances, uh, which was out of 1983. Very interesting, these guys. I think very influential in sort of a joy division type of a way bringing in a lot of different and melding a lot of different genres through this post-punk new wave type era some really interesting stuff from these guys uh band band out of london and i think captured this post-punk era quite well so still learning more about them but fire dances has been sort of my intro to these guys and i'm sure i'll take in the self-titled one soon which was their debut and then a couple of their albums in the later 80s that i think got a little bit more rounded out and maybe a little bit more commercial but you know there's some great bands from this era i mean simple minds is another that comes to mind and certainly a lot of the stuff nubs that you helped get me introduced to a lot like omde and you know a lot of that stuff i, I think a lot of this is kind of in the same realm but Killing Joke, a little edgier and a little bit more post-punk. So I'm, I'm digging into that, learning about a new band here recently, which is always nice. The second, we, we talked about Ken Andrews of Failure putting out some solo work um, last episode. And so I'm going to go to the other member of Failure, that's Greg Edwards, and mention Autolux, uh, a record that I fell asleep to last night actually i don't know if it's recommended that you fall asleep to this but their music is really interesting it's it's quite ambient and it's a little odd but i find it relaxing in a way so there this is their second record transit transit it's a little bit of a side project in fact i think it's i think it's a super group technically where there are a couple other members from other bands so it's pretty um they take pretty long gaps in between recordings. So hopefully they keep at it because Autolux is just a fantastic project. And Greg Edwards, just a superb talent. And listening to his work with Autolux, you definitely hear how he contributed to making Failure such a great band. So Transit, Transit, a great record from them. Uh, and then uh, the uh, third one, it relates a little bit to uh, tonight because it's a group that we saw with these guys you know, quite a bit. And that's Ario Speedwagon. And I'm throwing out there, uh, you can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish from those boys from Peoria, Illinois, the great Midwestern rock group, Ario Speedwagon. Dubs, what's round and round for you, buddy? My favorite Ario album and great title, uh, even better album cover, the big old fish with the <laughs> tuning fork in his mouth. Yeah, it's, it's so ridiculous. Yeah. It really is. Run around for me are a few titles that have been released of late, but as usual, bands that are very veteran, as one might say. The new Seven Dust album, Blood and Stone. Seven Dust has become like a mainstay in the metal genre. Just so much stability. And every album they put out has something to offer. Um, they're just so thoughtful and creative about their take on metal music. Blood and Stone is the new album, and it's very good. There's a lead single on the album that I recommend everybody to. Check out so the new Seven Dust to do on by Fate's Warning, Long Day, Good Night. Fate's Warning, a band that's been around for a while in the more prog metal genre. And again, they've put out an album every few years for the last decade or so. And really good stuff. Had a chance to see them a few years back at the old Token Lounge in Westland, Michigan. Mm, yeah. And uh, yes, yes, legendary place. And uh, Fate's Warning, good stuff from them. And then lastly, would be uh, getting even more metal, would be the new album from Trivium, What the Dead Men Say. Uh, Trivium, uh, probably the hardest, heaviest out of the three bands that are running around for me right now. Trivium's an awesome band. They've been nominated for lots of awards. I think they even won a Grammy, if I, I'm not mistaken, but I know they've been nominated for, for a few. And um, just a really good band that mixes in melody with really heavy, heavy guitars and 
growly vocals, but Matt Heafy, who's the, the front man, also has just a really powerful singing voice. So good stuff from Trivium on its new album and good stuff from the metal genre as we get further into the winter. It must be. Yeah, it must be winter because that's Nub's metal season. No question. Um, y- y- really quick on Seven Dust. It's really it, some of these bands are so smart to be able to you know, create the longevity that they do. A lot of people think of corn as well, but seven dust has been around just as long. I think maybe, maybe they came on a couple of years later, but it's really incredible, particularly within that genre bands that can find a way to have large catalogs and multi decade relevance, even if it's kind of a tighter, more hardcore loyal fan base to be able to within that genre be a band for as long as seven dust has is really uh, impressive. It is super prolific. You know, they, I think they've put out an album once every two years since their really, you know, landmark debut album came out and they just push themselves. You can tell it's a band that, that works really well together. And you're right. I like bands that stay together. You know, how many bands have we seen exit before their time? And it's nice to see a band stay together and be in for the long haul. Which kind of brings us to tonight's band Sticks. Speaking of in for the long haul, now Sticks has had many lineup changes, right? The band right now really does not resemble the guys from Chicago, Illinois that got together uh, really, I believe, in the late 60s, if not certainly the early 70s is when the band really got going. But um, it's, it's a group that now has sort of been relegated to the nostalgia touring circuit. This band is always on tour. Sticks, you know, plays multiple shows per state a year. So they've continued working and they actually have continued to do some really incredible studio work. The most recent album, Mission to Mars, is easily one of the best albums in the Sticks catalog. I mean, it, it truly is a fantastic effort. But the, again, the personnel for the modern Sticks is very different from even the Sticks we'll look at this evening on episode 22. And let's discover a little bit more about Sticks as we get into their nerdy deeds done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? Pieces of Eight was released September 1st, 1978. This was certainly in the midst of the hot time for Sticks. It followed up The Grand Illusion, which came out in 77, which itself was a triple platinum album. And Pieces of Eight also was certified triple platinum. So just think about that T in two years, really 77 and 78, the band puts out two triple platinum albums respectively, and just really on fire at this point in their career. Three singles from pieces of eight blue collar man, which was a a successful hit and, and continued to be kind of a radio staple on classic rock radio sing for the day is the second single. That one was not as successful. And then the, the last single renegade you know, certainly a Sticks favorite, uh, not only live, but again, continues to be kind of a radio staple. And, and Renegade's one of those songs that I think is carried on the Sticks nostalgia. You know, people just really love that tune. And, and that uh, those three songs led the way for Pieces of Eight from a commercial standpoint. The album was produced by Sticks. By this point, they had certainly earned some creative control. If you think about the success that Sticks has had uh, right up until 1978. And certainly, you know, some inner group struggles for control. But I think, as you mentioned at the top, a lot of that seemed to be born out of creative energy. You know, this was not a band that like hated each other or things like that. Even later in their career, when they tried to make it work again, the thing didn't really fall apart out of any hatred within the band. It was more issues that came up in terms of creativity and and work ethic and things like that. But um, at this point, Sticks seemed to be a very, very unified unit all on the same page. That unified unit was led by Dennis D. Young on vocals and keyboards. You know, Sticks had a lot of songwriters and a lot of visionaries, but Dennis D. Young by this point was certainly taking the reins of the ship, if you will. And you would certainly see that in the ensuing albums as they got into Cornerstone and, and absolutely with Kilroy was here. You know, Dennis D. Young sort of took over for better or worse. And Sticks fans will argue that until they're all uh, blue in the face. The one member of Sticks that has been in the band from the very beginning is James J.Y. Young on guitars and vocals. It's a little bit like Chris Squire from Yes T in that one of the lesser known members is actually the one that's been in it from the beginning. So J.Y. is the dude that was there at the beginning and, and never left the band 
right up until present day. Yeah, the workhorse of Sticks certainly. Certainly is, and kind of the rocker, as we'll talk about early in the album. Tommy Shaw, who, not an original member, but an incredibly vital person in Sticks on guitars, vocals, a couple other instruments. Tommy Shaw brought in kind of a modernness to the Sticks sound. He made them contemporary, he made them radio relevant, not only lending his soaring voice, but of course, his really exceptional guitar skills as well. And then the brothers, Chuck Pinozo on bass guitar and John Pinozo on drums. Those two, again, longstanding members of the band, neither of which are currently in the band. One of the things that stands out about the album is, of course, the cover art. Uh, Just a very stunning piece of artwork here by Hypnosis, that legendary 70s album art group that we've talked about before. Which we name-checked on the Pink Floyd Animals episode, I believe. They certainly did. They did every single Pink Floyd cover, if I'm not mistaken. They did most of the really good ones, that's for sure. And uh, a lot of other artists. So they did pieces of eight. I love the sleeve. Dennis DeYoung has commented that he hated the artwork uh, until much later in the band's career. And then it started to grow on him, as he said. But it's just kind of a picture of like chicks, big close-up pictures of ears and eyes and noses. I mean, what's not, what's not to like, Dennis? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's certainly a... Uh, it's kind of quintessential imagery from the seventies. I think if you show people the pieces of eight cover art, they'll immediately at least know that it was sticks and the, the band's name does not appear anywhere on the cover, which is kind of interesting as well. You can pretty much bank on if it was an iconic, you know, rock record through the seventies that had kind of that distinctive look to it. You know, there's a good chance that uh, that was done by hypnosis. Absolutely. Um, I think the last aspect of the personnel for Pieces of Eight is the studio was recorded in Paragon Studios in Chicago. The previous three Sticks albums before Pieces of Eight were all recorded there. And certain rooms have certain sounds, and the Sticks sound has a lot to do with the people. But those albums all did share a little bit of a a production sound that Mm -hmm. certainly has something to do with that room. And the fact that the band recorded in their hometown, clearly a place where They took a lot of pride and a place where they were very comfortable. So I think Pieces of Eight comes at a high point for the band, a point of creative peak and just good comfort. It seemed like the band was getting along well and and things were good. So, you know, obviously we'll stay focused on on the record and on the time period. But when you talk about sticks, you certainly have to diagnose a little bit of the I don't want to call it a struggle, right? Because again, to your point, this was a band that typically had good vibes, but there were certainly creative differences primarily between Shaw and Dennis DeYoung. And those aren't terribly difficult to um, diagnose when it comes to DeYoung's love of theatrics and concepts and, you know, stories and kind of this... um, very much a showman. You know, I feel like if he wasn't in rock and roll, he would have been some other kind of actor or lead man, you know, the type of guy that was just destined to be center stage in some capacity. And then you've got Tommy Shaw, who's just the uber talented rocker who seemed like he always wanted to keep things pretty simple and pretty driving and pretty rock and roll. So. You know, obviously, um, I think this is a positive era, to your point, creatively and directionally for Sticks. But really, what happened after and what has happened since, in your view? Because, you know, I know they tried to reunite and DeYoung was back for a few years and then that kind of fizzled. And, you know, recently they did the tour where they played Grand Illusion and Pieces of Eight start to finish, which what a great. Did you go to that show? No, it didn't come to Detroit. Oh. I would, yeah, I wish I, I wish I would have seen that show. Yeah, that would have been sweet. And and I know that they've done all that stuff without DeYoung, you know, which really does kind of change the complexion of of the band's presentation and somewhat of the band's sound. But what do you think kind of happened to these guys beyond the obvious um, sort of creative differences and leading to them sort of fizzling out in the eighties, which they did, and then now becoming more of this summer nostalgic act with more of a sort of piece together, no pun intended lineup. I do think that the creative fuel of this band was the, the tension of DeYoung's, you know, cinematic approach to rock and roll and JY and Tommy's 
you know, balls to the wall approach to rock and roll. Right. Mm. And without Tommy and JY, the band would have turned into something unrecognizable by rock and roll fans and something not enjoyed. (laughs) But without Dennis, the music wouldn't have any drama in it. That's super important as well. Right. I mean, Dennis's voice and his compositions led to some of the epic tracks that people love from this band. And I don't, oh, think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Tommy and JY would have gotten there on their own. You know, after Kilroy was here, which was sort of a, you know, it was a commercial success because it had a couple of hits on it, but, but for the band, it was a complete disaster. And the band quickly fell apart after that, mostly because of Dennis, you know, trying to do maybe a little too much. And I think he sort of knew that. So the band fell apart. Then they did an album with Dennis, but without Tommy, right? And then they all decided to get back together and they did a, the first time I saw sticks was on the return to paradise tour with Tommy, Dennis, JY, everybody. And it was awesome, right? It was an amazing show, but I think in the end, it really came down to work ethic because they were going to go out on another tour or something. And like Dennis developed this, I think he called it light sensitivity or some, some kind of like physical thing. And Tommy and the guys were like, we might get on the road. Like, this, this is what we do. You know, we're not a studio band. We're, we're a road band. We want to go out and play. And if you look at sticks since Dennis left, and they replaced Dennis with Lawrence Gowan, who's a phenomenal musician. I mean, mm-hmm. he really is. He made some solo albums, pre-sticks that are excellent. And uh, he, he's a really, really strong member of, of this new sticks. It's not really that new. That's what's funny. He's been in the band for like two decades now. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I think that it came down to work ethic. Sticks wanted to work. They wanted to get on the road and play 200 shows a year and do all the things that they've done, done since. And when you look at what they've done since, they've just worked, you know? Yeah. And Dennis really hasn't. He's made a couple solo albums. And for the most part, he's laid a little bit lower. And so I think even more than the creative tension, because they're all pretty professional guys, I think what it came down to was work ethic. And I think after a while, Dennis DeYoung's work ethic did not match the rest of the bands. So obviously, and, and that's a good point on work ethic. I mean, Tommy Shaw went on to, you know, be with damn Yankees and which was a great super group and all that, you know, he, he's the rock and roll guy and JT's the rock and roll guy. I mean, everybody kind of, you know, I think everyone's kind of okay with all that. I guess the question is for, for rock and roll enthusiasts and for those that kind of have an interest in a little bit of a study of this group. I mean, do, do we like Dennis DeYoung? I mean, do we, do we like him? We kind of look back at him and say that he was critical and important and that a bunch of his songs were awesome. Or do we kind of look back and say, boy, we kind of wish he could have just sort of kept it under control because they'd probably still be a great, uh, group to this day collectively. So, you know, I'm sure there's a sticks contingent, albeit probably pretty small, that is like anti-Dennis. I'm a huge Dennis DeYoung fan. I love his personality. I love his artistic vision. I love what he brought to sticks. I like his perspective on his career. I just I think the guy is great. If you ever like watch an interview with him, I mean he's he's a pretty compelling guy. You know? Yeah, he was I, I I think I am too. I mean he he was on the Gilbert Gottfried podcast fairly recently. And, you know, you get an idea of certainly this is not just a rock and roll guy. This is a performer. This is a guy who's into theater and into sort of the, the true art of it all. And, and that's great. And I think you nailed it earlier. All in all, I think I'm Team Dennis. I don't think the band would have been what they are without him. Now he did take them in some interesting directions and there was some indulgence and all that, but Hey, what rock and roll band in the seventies didn't have some of that in one way or the other. There's just happened to be more creative indulgence, but yeah, all in all, I, I think I certainly see that he was very critical to this operation. And, and dude, I mean, and we'll talk about it when we get in the track by track, but just the voice, I mean, the, the, the dude has a killer, killer voice, you know? And Oh yeah. I mean, the one thing that, you know, in, in, in studying pieces of eight again for this and just sort of revisiting the group as a whole, one of the things that really jumped out to me, these guys as singers, there are so many, not just great, but just brilliant voices in this band. And, you know, the way they meld together and the way they play on each other. And you and I have always really enjoyed you know, rock bands with two singers. These guys certainly had kind of more than two, really, but two distinct voices. But the quality 
of vocals in this band, I think is really what sets sticks apart from the others in many cases. I tell you what, let's hear from another quality voice because I want to hear your quality voice. Tell us your sticks story as we dive headfirst into your wondrous story. See, what is your sticks story? You know, I definitely remember. I mean, the first time we ever heard sticks was Mr. Roboto. I mean, probably like any other 80s kid, you know, because that song was so goofy, but it was also everywhere. I mean, that, that was like, say what you will about Kilroy was here and all that, but I mean, a lot of people bought it. A lot of people had it. That song was a this weird kind of anthem that seemed like you if you grew up in the eighties, you just heard, you know, it's like, I remember at a very young age hearing that song. And also I think whether you were five years old or you were 55 years old, you had never really heard anything like that before. So it's fairly memorable, even though it's kind of odd. So the first time I actually heard come sail away when the guitars come in and all that, I mean, it's a, that's an amazing song and another song that would, wouldn't have been there if it weren't for Dennis. It was surprising. It was like, Oh, I didn't know sticks did this. You know, I thought they were kind of artsy and theatric and cinematic and weird. You know, I didn't know they just played rock. And, and then, you know, a few years later we were going to see them during the summers, you know, and then you got the real full kind of idea of what was going on here, you know, and that these guys were classic rock giants. And an unbelievable amount of recognizable songs. Styx is one of the most utilized corporate band used for private events. The reason is, is on their face, they probably don't cost as much as some of the others. But the beauty is they get up there and they play for an hour and a half and you, you know every song. Even if you didn't know, you knew it. And you're just there for like some corporate event or something. Apparently they get up there and do an incredible job at these things and they earn every dollar that they get. So, you know, I think it's a band that, um, when you were, when you were born in 1980, like we were, you have kind of an interesting path of discovery, but the more you unpeel, the more you realize that, you know, not these guys didn't always knock it out of the park, but had some important moments and, and certainly a couple of, I mean, to your earlier point to release back to back triple platinum albums, you kind of listen back to them now and through the performances, through the singing voices and through just some really, really great songs, you can see why. What's your wonder story, Nub? So it lines up a lot with yours. I mean, um, I do remember Mr. Roboto and Come Sail Away. And I bought, uh, I don't know if you remember, but A&M Records in the 90s did this classics series. It was like greatest hits albums and a purple cover for all of them, a real standard cover. And I had a bunch of those and I had sticks classics and it was your run in the middle of greatest hits album. And I listened to it a lot, but never really got into the albums and deeper into the six catalog until later. Mm-hmm. My stick story really emerges more in the last 15 years. I've probably seen the band six or seven times in the last yeah, 15 years. It's true. They're just like a must see. They bring it every night to your point about their corporate work. I mean, they just, every night you go see them, you're going to see high quality musicianship uh, I love Lawrence Gowan, the new Dennis DeYoung guy, if you will. Uh, he's brought a nice energy to the band. And their new drummer, Todd Zuckerman, is like, honestly, he's one of the best drummers in the world. And so as a drummer myself, I like to go watch him and just watch him play. He's very nice. revered. Nice. So they just always deliver. I like bands that are consistent. I like bands that have stuck around and still have fun doing what they're doing. You could tell that, you know, I'm, I'm sure Sticks pays the bills. I think they're doing fine financially. So part of why they continue to be such road warriors must have something to do with their love of music and their love of what they're doing. And I think they're really happy with their lineup right now. And it just seems to be a cool thing. And so, um, yeah, I'm happy to, to go see sticks every time they're around the local area and will continue to do so, so long as live music becomes, you know, a thing again. I did not go see the show that you mentioned earlier where they did the grand illusion in the first set and pieces of eight and the second set, but let's make up for that right now. Shall we? 
as we dive into this 1978 classic album and take this episode track by track. It's all about unconventional openers as you drop the needle on pieces of eight. Things don't kick off with the soaring voice of Dennis DeYoung or the trademark silky sound of Tommy Shaw. No, 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 no. Pieces of eight starts with the rocker, JY, doing his thing on Great White Hope. Written by James Young, and uh, I think it's cool that they kind of took their third-tier singer and made the album opener out of that. There's lots of theories that this is a concept album. I, I don't. I think it's a. I think the album has a theme, but I don't think of it as a as a concept album by any means. But T, what do you think of the kickoff to Pieces of Eight? I think every Sticks album during this window probably had some element of a theatrical story concept to it. You know, Dennis has mentioned that while there's not a distinct story to the album, that there are certainly plenty of themes. It's kind of cool, this attitude and this um, sort of vibe of these Midwest, you know, 70s rock bands. I mentioned REO during the round and round, because there was certainly an element here of understanding kind of the, the working man and the working people. And I think a lot of these guys really identified with that because in many cases that, that, that was them before they were in rock and roll bands. And that maybe would have been them if they weren't in rock and roll bands. And you hear a lot of times singing about that and theming around that. And Dennis mentioned that pieces of eight kind of touches on, you know, go after your passion, go after your dreams, go after, you know, what you think you can be. Um, don't just kind of get settled in and stuck with what you think you should be doing. And and I think that that thematic was something that you saw a lot out of some of these Midwest rock and rollers with sticks, you know, being no exception to that. So I think that's part of why pieces of eight is always very digestible for people is that it wasn't overly theatrical or overly thematic, but certainly had, you know, some nice kind of intra themes woven throughout, but I like the way it starts out. I've always said they they have the artsiness of Greenwich Village mixed with the hard edge of Chicago, right? Like they got East Coast artsiness mixed with Midwest punch, right? I think that's why Sticks worked so well because they have both of those elements to it. And the opening track certainly would support that. All right, Dennis DeYoung officially takes over the album as we get into track two, I'm Okay. The organ plays a key role in this album. I'm Okay is the first appearance of that. It really rings through the choruses, but this is very Dennis DeYoung, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. And um, I love the verse section. I mean, it's structurally the song is really interesting because it's, you know, you kind of have the verse lick and then you have the verse vocal, right? And in the first one, they kind of break it down to just vocal and organ. And then the second one, it all flows together. It's really, it's a really well constructed song. But that, you know, that piece where the bass is just kind of walking in that octave and the guitar's doing that high part. I mean, I love that. Uh, I'll, I'll name check Pink Floyd Animals for the second time. It's kind of what you see at the end of Sheep, you know, where the guitar is kind of doing those high licks. And the bass is just walking on that octave. It's it's similar. Now that one's a little bit more up tempo, but and that's what I love about I'm okay. When that kicks in at the beginning, and then when you get that, you know, in between the first chorus and then the second verse, it's just a really, really cool part with a lot of a lot of kind of swagger to it. I think I'm okay is awesome. It's it's you know, I, I think it's one of the better rock tunes from back in that era. Not necessarily a um, huge hit for sticks and not necessarily one that, you know, you'd probably hear a lot of people going nuts over, uh, attending one of their concerts and wanting to hear more of the classics. But I think I'm okay as a big reason why pieces of eight is 
lauded by many as a classic album as far as what it accomplishes on track two. Yeah. You don't see I'm okay parodied on uh what, what, what movie was it? T was it wedding crashers? Where is lady parodied? <laughs> yeah. Lady was, uh, I think that was on wedding crashers. Uh, and then obviously come sail away, you know, by Eric Cartman. Yeah. You know, was a, was a classic as well. But lady so. was the more obscure. That was the Dan band that was, that did a version of lady. Wasn't I it? think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, wedding crashers. It does the total eclipse first, but then the comeback later in that wedding scene, if I remember right, is late is the Dan band doing lady. Well, I think total eclipse is in old school. I think. Oh, is it? Uh, okay. And Lady is in Wedding Crashers, I think. We'll have to, maybe we should do an episode about the Dan Band. We can clear all this up. <laughs> in our Dan Band episode, we'll have to figure all this out. But I do know there's a scene <laughs> in, in a movie where the Dan Band does Lady. And yeah. I'm, I'm okay as like, it's like Lady and Babe, but not, you know, not quite as good, right? And uh, I don't know if you know this, but I, I, I've like, uh, I've never envisioned being a front man or never wanted to be a front man of a band. But if I was, no, I would, that would be a big mistake. I that'd think. be a, that'd be a huge mistake. <laughs> but if I was, I would want to get up in front of a crowd of people with their lighters and sing lady. Oh, well, why don't, why don't you do it now? Let's, uh, no let me, boy. Let me see. No man. Lady. Maybe just, maybe just a chorus or something. I see no reason why we shouldn't do this. No, now. I see, I see about a hundred reasons. Okay. What, yeah. What are we getting towards the chorus here? Oh yeah. Okay, here we go. Okay, here we go. You're my lady of the morning. Shines in your eyes. Yeah. So sweet. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like you're either a lady uh, fan or a babe fan. I mean, a lot of people don't yeah. even realize those are two different songs. Yeah. And I'm more of a babe guy. So, um, oh boy. Well, you I know guess I'll just, I mean, I can't oh, just. Oh, let's see if we can pull that up. Yeah. Very tender with the Rhodes piano here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'll be lonely without. You, I need your love to see me through. Oh boy! So please believe me, my heart is in your hands, and I'll be missing you. Come on, man! Is that pretty? Cause you know it's you, babe. Whenever I get weary and I've had enough. Like giving up, you know it's you, babe. Giving me the courage and the strength I need. Come on, please believe that it's true. Come on, babe, I love you. Wow, wow, very tender. A tender moment here on Two Twins in an Album. You feeling that? Bob, I tell you what I'm feeling is like I'm going to lose my voice for the rest of the day. Yeah, well, both challenging songs, but I'd have to say that, you know, mine was a little bit easier. Oh, well, yours was better in every single way. But, and uh, just a reminder for everyone, those are two separate songs, Babe and Lady, you know? Yeah, let's talk about a mashup. It'd be, it'd be a good mashup because you yeah. can virtually do the same thing. Well, I think a lot of people just call it Babe Lady or Lady Babe. Lady Babe. They just think that just the same song, which is also funny because those songs were written and performed like 10 years apart, you know? Yes. Even in the same era. Yeah. Truth. All right. Well, we've done our singing for the day. So now let's kick it to Mr. Shaw to do a little bit of his own sing for the day. Yeah, so Tommy Shaw's kind of known as more of a rock guy, but every once in a while on a Sticks album, he would kind of throw a little bit of a curveball and create something a little flowery. Sing for the Day being that part. It's not my favorite Tommy Shaw track by any means, but it rolls along okay. It's 
it's got a nice spot on the album sequentially. Yeah, I agree with that. It comes off of I'm okay. Um, okay. I would say, you know, uh, it's a kind of a jig, you know, it's kind of a hold your beer up in the air and sway side to side type of a thing that you, you know, you hear maybe like in an Irish pub. So it's okay. It kind of does what it's supposed to do. I think on track three, you go from this sort of acoustic strummy Tommy Shaw thing to, you know, one of my, you know, true like loves is an album with a synth interlude on it. Right. Like I'm a, like synthesizer interludes <laughs> are totally speaking my language. Right. And we get one of those with the message. Oh. It's great, dude. If you watch the concert film of the thing where they did the album, yeah, you know, Lawrence Gowan just sort of pounding away at the synth to it, an entire audience saying, what the hell is this? You know? Oh, they didn't play the message when they weren't doing pieces of eight start to fit. I would think that that would be a fan favorite. <laughs> it's, it's a funny clip. Play the message. Come on. <laughs> I paid 40 bucks to hear the message. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But again, I think the sequence of the album is key. And, and Styx was always really thoughtful about what they did. And this album is perfectly sequenced. I couldn't imagine anything opening this album other than Great White Hope. And um, we'll get to some of the elements of side two when we flip the record over. But um, I, I love a good synthesizer interlude. I just do. I don't know. It's very 70s. And I think the band at this time is showing off some rather cutting edge sounds. You know, I mean, this, these type of sounds are, are normal to us in 2020, but in 1978, this was pretty novel. Did I see Ricky Wakeman sneak into the studio and do the message? Yeah. I, think he, I think he may have, although sticks had a fine keyboardist themselves. So, but uh, yeah, very, very seventies on that one. There'd be more notes if Wakeman would have done it. Trust me. And that leads into the final track on side one, which is all hail to the Lords of the ring. Written by Dennis DeYoung, but he generously gave the lead vocal duty to JY for James Young's second lead vocal of the album. I think this, this song is great. It's got such a grandness to it, you know, and I could see how it could be parodied a little bit. I get it, but I'm buying in, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Lords of the Ring. What do you think? Uh, you know, this is where Dennis DeYoung was great. You know, when he was able to just be theatric enough to where it wasn't showboaty and it wasn't, um, uh, you know, for the sake of it and, and it wasn't overindulged. You know, that's when some of their best work happened. That nice theatrical cinematic kind of effect from Dennis without it kind of getting overcooked, which certainly did happen from time to time. So, yeah, I think Lords of the Ring to close out the first side kind of balances that well. And it does close out the first side. So we flip the album right over you got to respect sticks they they saved both kind of surefire hits for the second side of the album which was pretty unconventional in the 70s typically your your hits would be somewhere between track one and track four on the first side of the album so credit sticks for the boldness and the sequencing yeah i think that's right and also it really shows their emphasis on the album right on as a as a piece and as a um sort of art form and of itself right they, they were not out to stick the singles up front and then put a bunch of filler in the back. There was certainly a progression and a thoughtfulness to these things. Sticks a very thoughtful operation, maybe sometimes too much, but they never lacked the ability to kind of ensure that what were, they were doing had presentation. And I think that that goes along with being perfectly okay with putting your surefire hits, which I agree these were on the back half, if it made it so the entire thing makes sense. Side two kicks off with the, Rather overdriven organ sounds of Blue Collar Man Long Nights. I 
think it's the vocal harmonies during the chorus that steal the show here. You know, it's a great riff, and Tommy clearly brought a, a pretty well-finished rock song to the table here, but I, I love those vocal harmonies in the chorus. They're certainly great, but there is something in the chorus that steals the show, in my opinion, and it's a little obscure. What do you think it is? Um, no, I, I don't know. What would you say, T? Really? I mean, it's got, okay, a, great, it's got a great bass line. I'll give you a hint. And I, you know, I don't have to say this to you often, but think about the drumming. Oh, well, ding, ding, yeah, what he's doing with the right hand on the back. No, I mean, what he's doing with the right hand's great. It's what he's doing with the left. He's hitting a tom. Now, ah, how okay. often did you see that? He's going offbeat on the bell, which is great, but he's offbeating on a tom, which gives it this like, rumbly kind of feel to it. I mean, anybody could have gone de de ga de 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 ga, but he's actually very thoughtful backbeating on a tom, which you do not hear a lot during big, tough rock choruses. And I think that's what makes it sound very unique and very, very cool. Uh, Blue Collar Man's a, clearly a classic, but I think it's little intricacies like that within this song that truly take what was already just in its essence going to be a great tune and made it a classic. I love the observation. Yeah, you're right. That is a little musical intricacy that you get. And uh, that's what Sticks is all about, right? Like that's one of the reasons they've lasted is they just did things a little bit differently than a lot of their peers. So yeah, this song went on to be a huge hit. And uh, as I mentioned at the top, it, uh, this was a big radio song. I know that classic rock radio in Detroit played Blue Collar Man a ton. I mean, I, you'd almost hear it daily. And um, it certainly lasted, and it's, it's still a, a showstopper. That leads into one of the uh, many high-quality album tracks on Pieces of Eight, and that is The Queen of Spades. So again, co-written by DeYoung and JY, and... <laughs> I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to know which bit was whose, right? Like that guitar riff right there is, is total JY. You know, you could just tell just from the riff itself. And then Dennis clearly with this, you know, really dramatic opening and closing and the trademark vocal harmonies during the chorus. It's pretty, you know, pretty complete song and a nice uh, next step for side two. Takes you in a lot of different directions and, you know, coming off of uh, really sandwiched in between, you know, the two, uh, sort of classics on side two of this record, which is an absolutely excellent side two, top to bottom. And Queen of Spades kind of gives you a little bit more of that, that proggy um, sort of multifaceted look at a song that, you know, almost gets you to six minutes. And yeah, Queen of Spades is pretty good. All right, T. Well, all I need to say is, oh, mama, renegade. talked about it on previous episodes the kind of the unconventional hit single i mean renegade certainly is that you know once the what's the part you just played and nice job is always maestro that once that kicks in it's it's kind of a clear catchy melody but in terms of like a radio hit most radio hits don't start with you know a solid minute of acapella and this one does and uh, it twists and turns too i mean this is this isn't like made for radio stuff, but like a lot of things from the mid to late seventies, I think it was the fact that it wasn't trying to be a hit is what made it a hit. Yeah. It's pretty unconventional. I mean, the structure of it's interesting to your point, you've got that whole sort of slow, um, little bit of a drum kick, but mostly acapella, you know, section at the beginning and then takes you into this. It really isn't a hook. You know, this isn't like, Blue Collar Man, where you have a really defined hooky chorus. It's more of a song that's sectioned, but choppy and to the point and really driving, kind of has that shuffle kind of groove to it, which is um, interesting, really, really well captured there uh, on the drums. Yeah, this is another classic. I mean, you go to a stick show and you hear this and, you know, they kick into the beginning part and everybody knows what's coming and what's going on. And a song that maybe a lot of people that, you know, we're into classic rock radio, don't even always necessarily know his sticks. But, you know, Blue Collar Man, Renegade, both on the same side of the same album, tough to beat. The middle of the song to me has some magic in it. First of all, that, and, and I'm sure it's a, uh, 
this song was was um, written by Tommy Shaw, but somewhere that did 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 like that middle section came out, and then when it opens up into the acapella version, but with the big backbeat, oh mama, do do do, that part's really cool, and it just elevates the whole thing. You know, I, I think that's a real high point that the song builds towards. I think it adds to the catchiness and kind of the beloved aspect of Renegade. But yeah, I think that middle section creates something big. Right before that redo of the acapella section too, there's a huge organ swell and the guitars are really blaring. And I just think at that point, it's, it's almost like the pinnacle of not just that song and maybe not just the album, but maybe Sticks in general. They kind of hit this high point during that section. With Sticks though, it always did come down to the composition and, you know, it didn't achieve Come Sail Away status, but I put this right up there with the great epics that the band did. And that's the title track of Pieces of Eight, known as Pieces of Eight. Title track. Well, team, I, you know, I could gush over this song for a while, but this is one of those moments where I want to know, uh, I wonder what you think more than me. What, what are your thoughts on Pieces of Eight? Yeah, I love it. I mean, it, you know, obviously you get an instrumental after this to sort of take you out of it. So it's all intents and purposes. It's, it's pretty much the closer with the exception of a bit of an epilogue here on track 10. But yeah, you know, it's a fitting way to close up this record, right? Which does have some thematics which does have some concepts albeit not necessarily a story but wrapping it up with a title track that you know has this kind of a little bit of an epic feel to it and and some very casual drama to it you know something with feeling but not overdone not overcooked not overly dramatic um so i just think you know it hits all the right marks uh as far as kind of wrapping this up or at least taking you close to wrapping this up and does it very fittingly, very appropriately. I think it culminates what you had heard to that point, particularly with the two singles on the back there. Um, I think it wraps it up in a bow exactly how it needed to, and, and is another big reason why I think the record is pretty renowned. And any De Young haters, you know, listen to this track. You know, it's it's just got a lot of elements to it that you love. It's got a nice, softer piano intro with a strong vocal by De Young. And then it just builds and builds into this huge chorus. And again, the vocal harmonies are trademark. And yeah, I think it's an ideal way to close the album from a song perspective. But the album actually does wind to a close with the rather brief and kind of touching instrumental. And that is Aku Aku. band gets to show off a little bit of its chops and uh, some atmosphere as well. And T, that brings 1978's Pieces of Eight to a fitting conclusion. All right, T, time to do our real expert analysis here. Whether Pieces of Eight matters. So T, does this album matter or what? Uh, A little. I mean, I think that, you know, the grand illusion is probably going to be the one that the band is the most known for i think top to bottom this is a better record you know but oftentimes you're probably it's probably a good healthy debate between sticks fans between just greater rock and roll classic rock fans i think you know probably more of them are going to point to the grand illusion or they're going to talk about kilroy or all the i mean this band does have an interesting kind of history to study a bit so Probably their best album top to bottom, though. I, I can't think of one that accomplishes what this does um, sort of in all 10 tracks because other Sticks albums certainly had some hits and misses. You know, these guys didn't get it right all the time, but this is an album that you can go top to bottom as well as any of their others. I'm not sure that it gets probably enough credit for being certainly one of the best rock albums of the 70s, which, which I think it is. But, you know, again, it's a band that... Uh, in some cases has a hard time, you know, kind of being taken seriously. I mean, to your point from the intro, it it shouldn't be a guilty pleasure to appreciate sticks and enjoy sticks. And it's not like the band's a joke or anything, but certainly like you say sticks and people 
typically giggle and it's not a, Oh, they suck giggle or, Oh, those guys are late. It's a, it's just, there's just something about the band that I think people just um, certainly don't take them too seriously, but you know, everyone kind of has a little bit of a, I think a soft spot in a good way, certainly, but also a little bit of a, um, for some reason, the band just kind of is funny, you know, just kind of, I think it brings people joy and brings people a little bit of a laugh. And in some cases that certainly helps them. I think that's part of the reason why they're still out there doing it. Not to mention they still sound great, but you know, also it's a very feel good band. And I think it's a pretty feel good album. It's not overly dramatic, not like some of their work got to be. So all in all, probably not as important as it could be argued. It should be. But it is a really, really good, very, very strong rock and roll album and one of the finest, I think, of its decade. How about you, Nub? You think it matters? I think it it matters to someone who wants to take a deeper look at the 1970s. It's one of those kind of second tier classic albums, in my opinion. You know, I don't think it's up there with the canon of 70s rock, but I think it's like second tier, right? And I think that anyone who's looking a little bit deeper, it's one of the things I always like about getting into bands with big catalogs is there's those albums that if you like it and you tell another fan of the band, you like it, you kind of know you're legit pieces of eight is, is that album to me. The grand illusion is the one that everybody likes and everybody knows. And the kind of imagery of the grand illusion is, is really well-known and well-absorbed pieces of eight is kind of that. Ah, you like that album. Ah, you, you, you kind of know your stuff, you know? And I, and I kind of dig that, but I wouldn't say it has a mainstream purpose in 2020. But hopefully 2020 will bring more discovery than the 1970s, because as you and I've talked about many times, it, it ain't happening again. This golden age of creativity and, and unabashed kind of no rules and rock music, it's not coming back. And so you need to go backwards to find that. And anyone who wants to take that a little bit deeper, I think uh, Pieces of Eight is a good find for somebody in that, ca- in that category. I don't know if I agree. I mean, I think a lot of people were saying what you just said in the 80s. You know, it was kind of like, oh man, like rock and roll is gone and everyone's doing synthesizers and drum machines and oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And then enter 1991, where the sort of minimalist swing comes back into play with as stripped down of a rock and roll era as you'll ever see. I think it's going to happen again. Like, call me, call me an optimist, you know, call me a dreamer, but uh you know, I think there will, once the indulgence of production kind of hits its peak, which it's sure to, and it's certainly on its way, I think we may be good for one more, uh, one or two more rounds of rock and roll. In fact, I think it might be cyclical. I think it just may, it might be one of those things that sort of comes and goes, or at least for, uh, for our kids' sake, let's hope so. Huh? Let's hope so for sure. I, I think technology has ruined that possibility, but you're the optimist, and I'm going to go with you on this one that maybe it's possible. I'll tell you what is very possible right now is to do the final cut. So T, pieces of eight. Is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it in the for sale bin? T, where's pieces of eight? I'm going to pull a U from last week. I think that originally this probably was a collecting dust and rediscovering it and plowing through it has put it in the collection for me. So um, always nice when that can happen on the old podcast here where we can not just edumacate our audience, but we can edumacate one another. See how that works? It's really a, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing if you think about it. It's wonderful. It is. Yeah, it really it is. is. Should we hug or? We yeah, let's hug over, over Zoom. Zoom, Zoom hug. Yeah, um, but you know, yeah, it's in the collection. I, I think it's one of the better rock albums of the seventies. I, I think it sticks as best. They have a deep catalog. So one that, you know, coming into this, uh, I had to dust off a little bit, but, uh, I would put it in the collection. Where would you put it? Nub? I'm glad to hear that. It's on the turntable for me because of the album tracks. The reality is blue collar band and renegade. And maybe it's a little bit of just the fact that I've heard them so much, but they're, they're easily the least interesting parts of the album to me. And they're both really strong great songs, right? So I'm not trying to be that guy who's like, oh, I don't like the hits because I really like both songs. But, you know, Great White Hope and Lords of the Ring and certainly the title track and just the interludes and the way that the album's sculpted and the, the artwork that goes along with it. To me, it's just a very complete set and one that I visit regularly as an album, top to bottom. So this one's on the turntable for me. 
I like the fact that for you, it went from collecting dust to in the collection, because I think albums like this, you just have to listen to top to bottom and you kind of discover why they're elite. You know, to me, pieces of eight is elite. I do think I, I agree with you hundred percent. I think it's Styx's best album. And when you look at the, the catalog of, of Styx work, you know, that says a lot when you have a catalog that's so extensive. All right, T, let's bring episode 22 to a fitting close because I'm telling you, my voice is killing me after singing Lady. <laughs> that lady really <laughs> took it out of you. Most certainly did. <laughs> I want to hear the three songs that are making their presence felt on your respective device as we do our What's In Your Head, In Your Head, In Your Head. See what's in your head. <laughs> well, <laughs> run, run away, Dolores. Um, the first is by The Shins, and it's a song I've loved for years. And it's like, I think it's a, actually a really brilliant song called Phantom Limb. You know, it's a, it's a well-produced, it, it kind of has a Phil Spector production to it. It's very, very lush with great instrument. I, I actually think it's kind of a perfect song. And it's not a band that I know a ton about or I haven't really like, I don't celebrate their entire catalog. Or I, I honestly like thought I'm shocked you even are open to the shins because of their important role. in what I know you, in your opinion is one of the worst movies of all time. <laughs> Garden state. Ugh. Remember Ugh. there's that scene with the shins and she talks about how the band will change your life. And yeah, I know the well, shins will not change anyone's life, but I know that that movie changed your life for the worse. Yeah, it made me, I think, throw a VHS tape out the window, if I remember correctly. But uh, yeah, agreed. I, I think, you know, and they, I'm sure they they were sort of pre-hipster and all that. But I'll tell you what, Phantom Limb um, is a wonderful song. And, and one that, uh, you know, I think it's the type of thing I could listen to every day and not get sick of. So, you know, it's one of those moments where I think there are certain bands that just Boy, it all comes together and great production and a great song and a great performance. And I think that's one of them. The second is from another great band, the Afghan Wigs. This is Debonair, which was kind of their single, I guess, off of the Gentleman record. And talk about longevity. You know, these guys have found a way to be around for some time and produce, you know, a lot of sort of diverse work and change a little bit with the times without at their core sort of changing what they are. And I think that they've continued to to put out pretty good work, but their gentleman album from the uh, mid nineties was certainly the highlight of their catalog and debonair great tune. And lastly, a band that I've been rediscovering, uh, you know, around the same era as sticks from out in Australia. This is the little river band who just has some great stuff. You know, you listen to their albums and certainly listen to some of their singles. I mean, they were a great band and uh, help is on its way was one of their more famous songs. And if, if you haven't gotten into the little river band, you know, check them out, even if it's through a best of compilation type of a thing, um, give it a go. They, they've got a great sort of little bit of AOR, a little bit of soft rock, but certainly, you know, they're, they're not afraid to jam every so often uh, a great group. So that is what is in my head. Nubs, what's in your head, sir? That's the, that's the, uh, the band that did Lonesome Loser. Yes, sir. That was probably their most famous song. I I do like that song. It's got a great chorus. Uh, In my head currently, gosh, a band that I think should have been huge and never even, to me, got close. And that's Palo Alto, who created a couple terrific albums in the 2000s. And uh, The World Outside is on an album that boasted at least three songs that I think could have been huge hits with the world outside being one of them. And it's one of my favorite songs. It makes a regular appearance on the old phone here. I've been getting back into the band stained and so far away is uh, one of the many stained songs that I really enjoy. And that's off 14 shades of gray. I'll tell you what I, you know, you mentioned two things that uh, those were hot on my radar about shoot. Probably you go back 15 years ago. Both Palo Alto and that Stained album, I oh man, I listened to those two a bunch. Last Way Out of Here is another really, really good song by Palo Alto. Also on the Heroes and Villains uh, album that you mentioned, Last Way Out of Here, another great song. But boy, too, you got a lot to live up to here on this third choice. Your first two were great. What do you mean? <laughs> well, pressure's on. Pressure's on. Third choice again, sticking with a little bit of heavier sounds for the winter, but uh, 
Chevelle uh, face to the floor. Okay. That'll work. That'll work. Yeah. Yeah. Fa- face <laughs> to the floor is a, wow. What a bomb drop of an opening track from one of their albums a few years ago. And uh, just a like opening riff that just speaks to you. And, and then it's, it's a total jam. And uh, Chevelle, you know, again, one of my favorite hard rock bands and gosh, once concerts start happening again, Chevelle's one of those bands I usually go see. So let's hope it happens T. but that is, uh, that is what is in my head. I'll tell you what's going to be in your head, buddy, for the coming days is some of them pieces of eight songs, right? Maybe even the title track. Great choice. Hey, the ultimate on this is when we come into it thinking the album is going to be at one level and then it rises to the next one. So uh, mission accomplished on that one. Great pick nub. Hey, anytime two twins in an album can make us better listeners. It can also make us better people. You know, that's what this podcast mm, I, really is. I don't know about that. Let's, you know, let's not push it here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, we don't look any better now than we did an hour ago. I'm just telling you. Worse. Worse. Oh, one hour older. What, we're one hour older, buddy. No doubt, no doubt about it. Hey, thanks everybody for checking out episode 22. Make sure and follow us on all respective platforms and check us out on YouTube and Apple Podcasts and Twitter and everything in between and shoot us a request like we've done before. We will fulfill your request. Send us an album that you'd like for us to do an episode on and we will fulfill your request because T, that's how much we care and we do really care. All right, you guys all take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you for episode 23 here on Two Twins and an album. See ya. Two twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.